So 24 of Rank and Review. This is your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and this week with my guest, Lee Beckman, we're going to discuss six movies on the topic of You So Crazy. And this is a special episode. This is a director masterclass because we have six celebrated directors tackling the subject of insanity. So uh, it's a little different. They're not all horror movies, but uh, they're all dark and they're all mad. So without further ado, please enjoy episode 24, and be warned, there are spoilers. There are definitely spoilers, and there is definitely coarse language. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. Alright, so uh, we're, we're, we're rolling. Welcome to another episode of Rank and Review, and welcome to my returning guest, Lee Beckman with two N's. Uh, <laughs> it's an honor to be here. <laughs> uh, so again, you chose this category, and this is sort of the first of uh, a couple of sort of special sub sub topics in here. I think that there's a lot of horrific elements to these movies that we're talking about, but they're not according to Hoyle horror movies. No, in fact, I probably think what maybe one, two of them are actual horror films. Um, but they all explore madness, and yeah. the other thing they all in common, have in common is that uh, there's sort of a director master class here. Well, there actually there are a lot of things in common with these films, but we'll talk about that. Yeah, um, but this is sort of the subset. I think it's like we're calling it "You So Crazy," but this is also a director master class. There are some very, very amazing filmmakers who actually have made some amazing films. Yeah. In like here. last time you were here when we did Creature Features, we yeah. we we did like we compared a no budget movie like yeah. The Roost with yeah. a big budget movie like yeah. the you know 2010 yeah. thing and in this one i mean we're going from different eras different time frames but yeah. they're all fairly big budget studio pictures made by well-established yeah. well-liked yeah uh genre directors so um, one of them is actually a first well, 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 it was his first movie but yeah uh truth be told i guess shallow grave is is a low budget feature um, but it's so well done. Yeah. And, I mean, and uh, Memento is nowhere near as big a production as Nolan would go on to. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, and by, by, his, by that means it's one of his cheaper movies. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so what drew you to the, the topic? Was it the madness or was it the director? It was the directors right off the bat. I mean, when you've got David Lynch, David Fincher, Michael Mann... Um, Danny, Danny Boyle and Scorsese. Martin, Martin Scorsese. Yeah, you just kind of go, wow! Like, see, these are some of my favorite movies of all time, and and some films I think I know for sure that we're probably going to clash on somewhat. So, yeah. 
Um, that's what attracted me to it, is really the directors. There's some really good movies in here. No, I don't think this is the episode where you and I go six for six, but we'll, no. uh, we'll, we'll, well, maybe we'll surprise each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and well, there's some amazing performances in some of these movies. Uh, let's, uh, let's name the movies that we are going to talk about. I have the 80s sort of establishment of uh, Lynch. I guess uh, he made waves <laughs> with Eraserhead. Yeah. And, uh, but this is the film that made him. This is the first truly Lynchian film. Like, Dune and Elephant Man are interesting, but they're not really as Lynchy as yeah. some of the other Lynch films to come. Yeah. Blue Velvet is quintessential David Lynch. Yes, it is. Uh, we have Danny Boyle's first directorial effort, Shallow Grave. Yeah, a very good twi- uh, twist on the old Hitchcock thrillers. Yeah, uh, and introduced the world not just to Danny Boyle, but to Ewan McGregor. Yeah. That was the first time I remember seeing him in anything. Yeah, so. well, I'm trying to think of uh, also the, like, the Christopher, say his name, Larry? Eccleson? Eccleson, I've been saying it wrong. Christopher Eccleson. This, I think this is also his big debut, at least North America. I'm trying to think of other movies he was in before that. Yeah. Uh, which 20 days later came after. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anyways. Um, we got Manhunter. <coughs> yep. Michael Mann's Manhunter, which was remade uh, into a movie called Red Dragon. Yeah. Uh, it's the precursor to uh, it's the first the Silence time. of the Lambs. It's the first time our Sarah's novel done for the first time. I mean, yeah. it has that. Uh, it boldly states right here on the back of the DVD case yeah. that it is a superior film to Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. which I would argue, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, Christopher Nolan's uh, film Memento, yep. uh, Guy Pierce, Carrie-Anne Moss, Joe yep. Pavliano, uh, yep. good cast and it, high concept. introduced the world to Christopher Nolan. Yeah, uh, my buddy Stephen Tobolowsky's in there. Oh, he, uh, yeah, and... Uh, What's the guy? I, I'm, of course, I'm running out of blank on the Canadian actor's name. Callum Keith Rennie. There's two of them. There's Callum Keith Rennie and Carrie Ann Moss. Yeah, yeah. But Callum Keith Rennie is awesome in this <laughs> very limited role. Yeah. Um, Martin Scorsese's uh, more, one of his more recent films called yep. Shutter Island um, yeah. with uh, his frequent collaborator, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. And, of course, we have Fight Club from David Fincher. Uh from 1999, a really uh, rough and tumble, uh, <laughs> yeah, macho picture, if ever there was one. It's it's a very thing. disturbing movie, but brilliantly told. It's yeah. it's it's polarizing. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 supporting and talking about certain issues that I think a lot of people would find uncomfortable. Yeah. So it's yeah, but it's good. Anyways. Onwards and Is there anything you want to say more about the directors or about psychos in general, or shall um, we just Well, I, I mean, I think the, really we should get to it. I mean, I could talk about the comparisons and how they reference not only Hitchcock but Edgar Allan Poe. Um, the, the, all these films are about identity. That's that's the one thing I really got about it. You know, on a whole, all these characters are searching for their identity at some point. But I've uh, said too much. I do think that we do look at insane people in all of these movies there are either one or several characters that we yeah. get to know well yeah. who are mentally ill yes. and uh, to see a, a, a really really game director sort of tackle sort of a fascinating concept like that uh, yeah. shall prove interesting yes let's do it beneath the surface of the perfect small town a dark world Awaits. Are you the one that found the year? You know anything? Well, one name that keeps coming up is this woman's singer. I bet someone could learn a lot by getting into that woman's apartment. I don't know if 
you're a detective or a pervert. Well, it's for me to know and you to find out. What are you doing in my apartment? I close my eyes. What you see here with Blue Velvet is sort of the first time the loud and proud art house world of Lynch sort of gains favor with everybody. Yeah. It was fairly successful theatrically, and it was very, very respected critically. Yeah, but it took a while for it to be um, respected really, but well, it, to make its money back. When it first came out, it actually sank. Oh, yeah? yeah no, no, it spent months. It, it is actually sort of the classic, classic definition of a sleeper hit, because... It slowly turned around. It slowly turned around, but, you know, at that point... Um, Dino De Laurentiis was about to fire David Lynch. He had made Dune and he'd made Blue Velvet yeah. <laughs> for him. So um, he was very much on the outdoor. And then all of a sudden, it just Blue Velvet just sort of took off. But it, it took months. You'll see a lot of things in this movie that were quintessentially David Lynch in that the cast that he'll return to again and again, yeah. Laura Dern, Kyle MacLachlan, most yeah. obviously Dean Stockwell. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of supporting... Um, a, a lot of people that you will see in a lot of Lynch's work yeah. and a lot of themes and yeah. a, a lot of vibes that are similar to that. The uh, Baldamenti sort of jazzy score yeah. and uh, sort of the persistent, pervasive feeling of uncomfortableness. Yeah, yes. Um, if I was a film teacher and I was teaching students about film allegory, I would definitely show him some Lynch films because, especially with Blue Velvet, there's it, he's not subtle with his what this is what this movie's really all about. Um, you know, with, you know, with the ear on the ground and underneath all the sort of sweet Americana is this evil darkness. I mean, it's a great way. It, his visual allegory or allegories are beautifully done in Blue Velvet, and that's one thing I love about it. Well, I will give it this. Um... I understood where he was going for in this, yes. and I can't always say that with yeah. Lynch. A lot of times I am left utterly baffled. Yeah. Well, yeah. Whereas in this case, I get it. I get it to a degree where it's almost almost pushing it. Like, yeah. uh, I get when we do the slow pans, it's a very, sort of a beautiful, beautiful, green, rich, suburban environment. Yeah. And then we pan in closer and closer, and we see the ugly bugs and insects yeah. underneath. You know, yeah. The closer you look, the more horrible things yeah. you will find. Yeah. And he establishes that as a theme right away, and yeah. it does kind of hit me over the head. Yeah. There's no subtlety to it, but at least it's a tangible, I can hang on to that, I get the theme that you're, yeah. you're going to ring in this movie. Yeah. And that is at least a lever into this movie. Yeah. But basically to try and outline the plot, a basic everyman, played by Kyle MacLachlan, after Very finding... Kyle MacLachlan. Yeah. Almost looks like he's fresh out of high school. <laughs> he's yes. just a baby face kind of often. Yeah. Uh, finds an ear on his walk home one day. Right. And uh, he takes it to a quirky local sheriff and basically starts to investigate it in his own creepy way. Yes. His investigation involves some home invasion. Yeah. It involves, you know, sort of spying and in some S&M and meeting a lot of really creepy, creepy people. There's a great line, I think, that sums up the kind of Lachlan character in, in Blue Velvet and it actually comes from Laura Dern, who is also 18 or 19 year old when this movie is made. And that line is, I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert because really he's both. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, well, he's a voyeur. Oh, yeah. Uh, he spends much... a lot of time in a closet watching terrible yeah. shit go down. Yeah, even though, I mean, it's one of, it's a choice made of panic. He does keep on looking, and voyeurism is, you know, one of those themes that runs throughout Blue Velvet, so yeah. There's a lot of really disturbing and memorable images in the movie, yes. and I, I'll give it that as a plus. Yeah. And there's a lot of disturbing and memorable performances. Uh, there, Dean yes. Stockwell, who's got a rich catalog of eccentric performances... Gives one gives, that uh, I sort of kind of got to kind of go. <laughs> what is the point of this? I mean, it is hypnotic, and he's all out. And uh, it would be it would be a very self conscious, you know, sort of uncomfortable performance to give. Yeah. But clearly, the performance of the movie yeah. is given by the late great Dennis Hopper. Yeah. With his nitrous gas container and yeah. his completely insane, manic, and frankly terrifying portrayal. Let's well, see. The that's villain. one thing that Blue Velvet also does very, very well. Is it's been a while since I had a general, you know, dread and f- you know feeling of fear, and Blue Velvet provided, you know, mainly because of Dennis Hopper. Yeah. Yeah. Like that is actually a very well thought well created character <laughs> brought to sheer life yeah. by Dennis Hopper um, and it was in a period of his life where he was he wasn't 100% on the rebound yet I think he had just gotten out of rehab yeah, actually Hoosiers was sort of the movie that sort of brought him back into the focus and made people think yeah we can work with Dennis Hopper again he's yeah. out of the clouds yeah. but this movie still has a percentage of crazy in him I think right. that he's sort of uh, letting it off the leash here in yeah. this portrayal yeah. uh, totally hateful and totally cartoonish character yeah, I don't see, know if I believe this as a real person, but I do know that it does I, I, terrify I, and intimidate me. Watching I it. think it's the, the person on this can it totally exist. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I, I agree, it's a caricature. Like in the, I mean, he does. You know, he's at one level the entire movie, and that's. He belongs in Lynch world. Yes. This doesn't feel real world to this, me. This feels Lynch world, but it feels that good terrifying sort of level of Lynch and again I keep on repeating myself but I just wish Lynch had made an honest horror movie in his career I wish he had the focus and the desire to actually tell an honest scary story well because almost all of his films will have these scenes or these moments that are so uncomfortable and so uh, horrifying that by themselves they they work really well on the basic sort of nerve shattering way but uh, they sort of stand out in a movie that, that otherwise have a lot of scenes that kind of overstay their welcome. Well, uh, yeah, I think that uh, this that's... is true for Blue Velvet, but it is more true of subsequent films. Yeah. Um, I like Blue Velvet enough to give it a positive review. Yeah. I don't like it so much to be enthusiastic about it. See, for me, you know, the, also I love of, you know, classic cinema like Hitchcock, there... You can tell that the that I made this movie is very much educated in the art of film. There's so much attention to detail, and that's one good sign of, of amazing directors. Their handprints are all over it. Um, where we are here, yeah, I mean, especially watching Hitchcock, I got, you know, de- definite, you know, connections of Vertigo and Rear Window, obviously. Um, but, and, but even the scene where he, um, you know, he's like, trapped in the closet or he's walking down the hallways, the set design in this film it's you know it's well thought out and well done, and that's clearly all Lynch as well. But there also is the a precision lighting. to his to his films. There's like too many. Yeah, he, he he. This is obviously exactly what he wanted on yeah. film. But I always stop short of calling him sort of a technical genius. In that, I mean, he's really good at getting what he what is in his head on the screen. I think. Mm-hmm. But as far as communicating what it means to any other level, he doesn't seem interested in it at all. 
and again, uh, watching his subsequent catalog, I think, supports my argument. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the design, the music in this movie, uh, I can't remember who did the music. Angelo Baldamenti. Baldamenti. Uh, Angelo Baldamenti, yes. Collaborator. Yeah. Uh, the music is really well done. The lighting, like I said, is, and it's all, you know, you know that's all planned and done well. Um, the performances are, ne- are uneven and blue out. It's true. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of Kyle McLaughlin, to be perfectly honest. And it's Lord, a little flat. Yeah, I, I think with the right director, he's you know, he can be cast well. Laura Dern also is very, very young. I mean, she's definitely pretty to look at, and it's a very sweet nature performance. I will say that Laura Dern grew into an amazing actress. Yes, yes. Um, she um, was she was not quite there yet in this movie. Yeah, but uh, like, it, they do seem like kids to me. Yeah, I mean, and they are. They Gretel. are. They They're Hansel and Gretel in this really fucked up wilderness, right? Yeah, <laughs> but both um, Dennis Hopper's <laughs> quite amazing in this film, but uh, also. Um, the actress Isabella Rossellini. Isabella Rossellini. Yeah, I did want to talk about her character, and I think this is the most troubling, yeah. problematic, and I guess interesting thing to talk to about in this movie. It's the one criticism I have of the film, and are, are we going to you know just get to that particular scene right off the bat? And that's the S and M scene. Yeah, legend has it, and this is why I, I, Blue Bell kind of went a notch down on my belt because I've often wondered about. Um, he, you know, his attitude towards sexuality and violent sexuality, or at least, you know, trying to be shocking just for the sake of shocking. But legend has it, you know, they were filming that particular scene. Um, and it's a pretty wild scene, the S&M scene where, you know, eventually Isabella Orlean and Kyle Oxlund eventually have sex after this really long, demented, you know, seduction that's gone on. And, but legend has that, as they were filming that scene, and it's quite an intense scene, that David Lynch was kind of giggling like a little schoolboy, Right behind the camera, going, you know, thinking it was quite hilarious, and that kind of told me that he wasn't treating that particular subject with enough respect. It was kind of done just more for a sense of humor. And There's sleaze here. There's a bit of sleaziness to it. Well, it's it's just more. He kind of. I just got the impression that he kind of thought that. You know, let's throw in the you know the theme of S and M just to be shocking a little bit. But I'm not. He, it doesn't really come properly. It, Explore it, and it's a. It, it can be a very. I'm sure is a very interesting topic. It is. I think it is a weird Lynchian thing to put in the movie to make the movie weird and Lynchian. Well, if they'd have tethered this all strictly to yeah. the Dennis Hopper's character, yeah. and the, this is what he needed to get off. This yeah. is the kind of violent, aggressive act yeah. that he needed to uh, sort of wrestle his demons. Yeah, uh, it would be horrifying, but at least we could tether it to something. Yeah, but. Rossellini is into it. Yeah. And uh, that that sort of adds another layer to it. Now, I'm not Mr. Into the World of Kink guy. I yeah. don't really understand yeah. the psychology of either party in yeah. this exchange. Yeah. So I watch it with just uh, a, a wonder, a sense of wonder and yeah. horror. I yeah. don't... I don't engage with it, but it, yeah. it's very lynchy to have a weird kinky sexual angle to the movie. Yeah. And... As to what that plays in or how that uh, feeds the theme or the story or the rest of the movie, yeah. I don't know that it necessarily does. Yeah. I know that we see Isabella Rossellini in, in scene after scene of sort of sexual torture and humiliation, yeah. and we see her you know, wandering around beaten and naked for large portions of the movie. Yeah. And the fact that you know Lynch would be tittering behind the camera while this is going down... I think, again, furthers my argument that a lot of his movies are sort of dressed up art wankery. 
Yeah. This was maybe um, interesting because it was his first and more uh, most ce- one of the most celebrated dressed yeah. up art right wankeries. But yeah. I still think I find That's it guilty. Bold words, man. <laughs> I find it a little bit guilty of it. I yeah. mean, I am in the minority, and yeah. I said the same things when we reviewed Mulholland Drive. Yeah. I said the same things, and I'm sure would be rebuffed by a lot of the Lynch fans. Yeah. I think this is a much better and more interesting movie yes. than Mulholland Drive. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, I still, again, this is like a, a, a C review. It was C, C minus sort of review wow. for me. Um, I, again, I just don't meld well in the Lynch world. Like, I, I, I like movies with sexuality in them. I yeah. like movies with intense yeah. violence to them. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that doesn't offend me by yeah. itself. But there's something about the way Lynch handles it. Yeah. Um, and his, uh, and again, I say this in a way to his credit, yeah. his ability to make you consistently uncomfortable while yeah. you're watching his movies. Yeah. Like you feel this icky, like not quite gag reflexy, but like there's an unpleasantness to yeah. it, yeah. which I mean, hurts the rewatchability, I think, to any movie. But the fact that this is his wheelhouse, this is his bread and butter, yeah. this uncomfortable ick world yeah. is where he, Lynch exists. Yeah. Makes me, you know, I, I, I almost put him in, you know, the same category of like Larry Clark or uh, no. the, uh, well, Larry Clark, again, it's just, it's just Larry, I mean, Larry Clark is that, you know, almost an expert. But as far as there's always got to be an element to his movies yeah. of, of, of ugly sexuality or yeah. violence. Yeah. And that, that, you know, that's his forte. Yeah. Um, the other guy I have to mention, the nymphomaniac, Lars von Trier. Yeah. Uh, always about ugly violence and sexuality specifically towards women yeah. and it's handled in such a way as to just not it, over over and above being an unpleasant experience yeah. watching just you 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 question the psychology yeah. behind it yeah um do i take baggage into a david lynch movie and did i take baggage into this one i guess maybe i did yeah. um but um i think this is an interesting movie yes but i don't think it's a great one really See, once again, I think there's there's far too many elements that work. I agree that you can, you can take out the S&M stuff. I mean, keep the scene where, you know, Frank has that, you know, gas thing and, you know, Daddy wants to fuck scene. Yeah. That, that, leave that there. That's disturbing and demented enough. But you really don't need the S&M scene. It, it, it doesn't elevate the character I know. I mean, you could argue that you know it gives a certain psychology, psychological dimension to the character, but you don't need it. Um, I, yeah, no, I remember Roger Ebert's review of it, and he was very much offended by it, which is interesting because apparently he was also into SNM personally. Hmm. But um, no, he seemed deeply offended by it, and I mean, it doesn't really offend me, but it's it's such an interesting theme that you could have made a different movie about it. Offend isn't the right word, yeah. even necessarily. I yeah. mean, I get what he's going for. Um, yeah. I just, it's not my world. It's the Lynch world, the yeah. Lynchian thing that people yeah. tend to embrace. Yeah. Very rarely do I catch the wave on it. This yeah. is another case of that. Well, like I said, I, I, I felt general fear and dread. And it was not just from, you know, Dennis Hopper's, you know, character and his storyline. It's, you know, it was, you know, the mood. It, it, once it, he, once um, the Kyle McLaughlin characters go deeper and deeper into Lynchian world, there's a general fear and dread that stays with you for quite some time. And it, it, it takes a really good filmmaker to do that. You know, considering of all the films I've seen in, in you know, in my very short life in a lot, in a lot of ways, um, I can still you know, look at something like Lost Highway or, or even Blue Velvet, and there's some things that general, you know, the feelings of dread that come from this movie still. 
And I think that says something to the power of the movie. They are different, and that does make yeah. them stand out, and it does make them memorable. Yeah. But does it make them good? This question is asked of many artists. Yeah. Are they? Is is Lynch trying to entertain his audience or himself? And both. Or is there a way that he can do both? Yeah. I don't know. But, I mean, he had like, those scenes when with Dennis Hopper first shows up, and even up to the point of the S&M, S&M scene, they're well done. Like, everyone goes full bore. It's it's a well-written, well-acted scene. Uh, or, or scenes, I should say, plural. Uh, and it's just the unnerving and powerful. Um, you don't really need much of the Dean Stockwell character. Frank, or what was it... Uh, who is so suave? Yeah. Uh, he was a bizarre and interesting element. But you don't need exactly that long yeah. lip-syncing scene. You kind of go, okay. Yeah. But, yeah. I don't know. I really enjoy it. I, I, I still consider it an you know, American classic, but you may differ. sliding door nationwide victims yeah this is Will Graham of the FBI one killer this is what the subject's teeth look like Michael Mann yep interesting director yep uh people love him I yes um I like a lot of his movies yes you don't love him but once again I uh again I whereas I'm defender of people like Stuart Gordon uh I I think that there is a percentage of snobbiness to some Michael Mann joints as it were I love his last of the Mohicans yep that's a really good movie and it's in a lot of ways is sort of every un-Michael Mannish movie yeah um he does love his sort of you know I would I would call them sort of film noir crime stories quite well he handles action wonderfully yeah i, I think res- that he's a technically very good director in yeah. that regard he sometimes needs an editor you need someone to say you know what you know just trim this down somewhat on that we agree yes and um i knew that going into watching manhunter yeah. again that this is a guy who likes to take his time mm-hmm. who loves the montage mm-hmm. who loves to I let his films <laughs> he likes to let his films <laughs> breathe little... and you have to kind of sort of prepare yourself for that yeah. when you go in. Yeah. But what really shocked me is that how unkind I think time has ended up being you know, the, on Manhunter. Manhunter kind of reminds me of a, f- a famous quote. I think John, the great filmmaker John Borman, yeah. uh, God rest his soul, I think he's passed on, or has he not? Has he? I don't know. Anyways, the great you know, the great John Berman once said the difference between, you know, I'd say, you know, a, even, a, even a good movie to a classic movie is that they're timeless. You know, the, nothing sort of bogs them down from the era in which they were made. The, this movie could have been made in any other time. And Manhunter is very much a film of the 80s yeah. in a lot of ways. It, it reeks of, of sort of 80s cheese that you can... Kind of hurt. For the record, bit. John Borman has made some great movies. Yes. But he also made The Exorcist too. He did, and Zardoz. That alone, that alone should make him fall short of greatness. <laughs> but uh, yeah. anyway, we're not here to talk about that. Yeah. Um, Manhunter. Wow. Manhunter. Um, 
It's the soundtrack is a large part of it, yes. I think. Like the music that he chooses is very of the day. This is what ninety eighty seven, I think. Or something I, like yes, this. I do believe so. And uh, so it would be very current and recognizable yeah. and right for the day that it was was in. Yeah. But thirty years later, um, I don't want to listen to three and a half minute of this six and a half minute shitty eighties pop song in the middle of this otherwise it quite does, compelling it, it, procedural. It does date the picture, uh, the picture, and also you know some of the lighting as well. Um, one thing, I mean, you have to give give it props to is the fact that this is the first Thomas Harris novel that's put to film. It, <laughs> it, it does have this. It's the first time you see Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. We're introduced to him. And actually, it's a pretty good performance by Brian Cox. Brian he, Cox, friend yeah. of the show? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, at least we're, we really like him. It's a very him. reserved performance. You know, I think he's a rock solid, yeah. rock solid uh, performance yeah. uh, here. Uh, I think that... Uh, I don't think it exceeds anything necessarily that Anthony Hopkins did with Lecter, but I think that it's rock solid. It does exactly what you want. What's it to interesting do. about Hopkins' interpretation is that in a lot of ways it is kind of really over the top, and mm-hmm. so it does beg the question: which is the more sound performance of Hannibal Lecter? I mean, um, you know, Hopkins, who you know is very delicious in some of his some of his scenes. Or Brian Cox, who you know does you know emote a, gen- a genuine fear of dread with the character, mm-hmm. uh, and is you know conniving and is really more dangerous locked up than he is alive in a lot of ways. There's a school of thought is where you know you can smack your lips and cackle and yeah. come off as super crazy, yeah. but you know the idea is this is very reserved, very yeah. sort of polite, sort of. Distinguished. He's very evil. seductive. He's evil. very seductive. Yeah. I mean, he lures you in just by simply talking to yeah. you. So you don't believe anybody this intelligent could yeah. be capable of any amount of evil. Yeah. And uh, he clearly is. Yes. In fact, it's his motivating yeah. <laughs> force. What hurts it in a lot of ways, though, um, are unfortunately some of the actors, and that's the one of the things I forgot about Manhunter. You and I are probably going to disagree on this. I kind of, I don't. It's not that that Tom Noonan is miscast. I think he is cast quite well. I just think he sort of undersells a couple of scenes. One being the one where he does capture Stephen Lang's reporter character. Um, it's a couple of the line reads just come off as you know poorly used, and it, it sh- may, might show a very young Michael Mann. I think before this he had done Thief, The Keep. Um, I think Crime Story was just starting to take off, so it's sort of a young Michael Mann, and it seems like kind of a weird attention to detail. Huh. Joan Allen, and I do believe her first movie role is also, yeah, it's it's you can tell it's a young actor, so. That, I think that, that the, hurts Manhunter. It does. It's and a, I think those problems are story-wise. I don't buy or particularly care about the romance Yes. between this evil psychopath yeah. and this naive, innocent, blind woman. Yes. I don't buy it. I don't particularly want it. And that's I don't, part of the problem with a lot of... Sorry. I don't think that we want to humanize Tom Noonan's character. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's... Uh, it, you know, everybody's a person in here. There are no monsters in the real world. Yeah. But uh, I don't... Once we find out that he slits children's throats in yeah. front of their parents... Yeah. I don't... You know, I'm not going to be in a position where I feel any amount of sympathy for him. Yes. So having those scenes, you know, where you get the feeling like maybe if he'd met her before he'd started his little Red Dragon project, uh, he would have worked out okay. But uh, because he believes himself freakish and and ugly and unlovable, 
he acts out in these horrible ways. Yes. I like Tom Noonan a lot in yes. this movie, and I think that a lot of it is just his sort of, he's this tall, gaunt, like I said, intimidating he's, looking he's well fellow. cast. I say go back to the scene where he has that, uh, basically he's kidnapped that reporter, and he's, yeah. he's, he's essentially torturing him. Um, and maybe it's, and maybe it all, it, I'm being biased because he, in, you know, we've now had another adaptation, Brett Retner's adaptation, yeah. and you have Ray Fiennes, who in a lot of ways makes it, it's a, it's a very different performance in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, he does make Dollar Hyde somewhat, somewhat sympathetic. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I, I don't feel like that. Part of the problem is, is, and this is a, a familiar complaint with Michael Mann movies, is I don't think he writes female characters all that well. You know, if we were going to feel any sort of kind of deeper connection with the Dollar Hyde character, right. you know, that romance was going to have to work somehow. But and again, that comes right out of the books, too. I know, so well, that, I know. That's but, a problem with the story in itself. But, Where the movie works yeah. is in the procedural aspect. Yes. And this is quintessentially true with Michael Mann's movie. I think yeah. most obviously demonstrated yeah. in Heat. Yes. The movie Heat. Whereas yeah. all the heist stuff and all the cop stuff the is The attention great. to detail is there. And all of the relationship stuff yeah. is meandering and you kind of wonder why it's there. It doesn't help the movie, right? I think uh, some of it does in Heat. I, I think it's similar. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll talk about Heat another day. Yes. But uh, I think that there's similar problems here in Manhunter. Yeah. Some I of the love dialogue the is very stilted. That's a, I love the scenes of, like, uh, our main character walking through the, the crime scene of yeah. the house yeah. and taking notes on his audio recorder about, yeah. you know, his interpretation of the events. Yeah. I, I love the, you know, the pressure that everyone's under because yeah. this guy stalks families. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's all, you're always under pressure because there's always going to be another victim, but the yeah. fact that it's going to be an entire family with kids, yeah. that's his modus operandi. Yeah. Uh, everybody is working. 24 hours and, yeah. and killing themselves to get this guy. Yeah. Love that aspect too. Yeah, William Peterson's his character and his arc is actually you know the selling point of the movie for me, and it's really well done by Peterson. Yeah. Once again, it's just it's kind of stuck in those 80s kind of almost style of acting where you know having a cigarette dangle from your mouth and you know having shaved. All of the right. rooms are filled with smoke for yeah. some reason. Yeah. All of the time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot, you know, take away the whole Miami setting, and really, in a lot of ways, it's almost like a Western. I'm surprised man hasn't done one yet. So, But, yeah, William Peterson does, I think, does save this movie. It's not a terrible movie. The, the story itself is pretty good. Um, it just has some creaks and moans, and it, it's, it's sort of stuck in its sort of 80-ness, if you will. I there's a, I think this comes from Thomas Harris more than from Michael Mann, but yeah. he's got this inclination. Whereas typically they keep the monster in the shadows. Yeah. He wants to get the monster out of the shadows and let us get to know the monster as much as possible and get every crevice of it. Yeah. And I understand that as a conceit. Yeah. Uh, but for me personally, the monster works better in the shadows. Mm. I think that maybe we could agree that less Tom Noonan would have helped this movie. Yeah. Because uh, the the more we see Tom Noonan, the more quirky and less creepy he is right yeah. Yeah. um whereas 
if they would have made the choice to change the book, since they do it so often in Hollywood anyway. And they do, actually. The uh, ending of this movie is quite different. different. Yeah. It's quite different from the actual book itself. In this case, my yeah. argument is they should have left the monster more in the shadows. Yeah. Their, their strength was in the procedural aspect. Yeah. And, and like I say, uh, the other things you kind of have to take on the chin. The fact that all the rooms were filled with blue smoke and that the 80s soundtrack was loud and proud. Yeah. And uh, that there were long, long scenes of you know people driving from point a to point b and yeah. sunsets that just like well it's, trim it's, the it, fat people it's it's you know man trying to establish his mood in a lot of ways maybe uh, trim it a little bit but i also watched the director's cut yeah um there's a movie that came out recently drive actually i watched it with you which is very much emulating michael yeah. man yeah. and one of the things that i find interesting is that when people emulate Michael Mann, they choose to emulate this sort of languid pacing mm-hmm. and montage and sort of uh, feel the person, feel the character. You yeah. know, no dialogue, but less character. Whereas if I'm going to emulate Michael Mann, that is that is not what I would be choosing for. I would look at his heist sequences or his action sequences or his gunplay, which feels very real, feels very authentic. The other stuff is movie stuff, you know? Yeah. There's nothing more movie than a montage, yeah. as my friend Matthew I, would say. Well, yeah. I I do enjoy a, a, a lot of the style of his movies. I can tolerate his long, sort of pensive, angry man staring into the, you know, the vapid darkness that he likes to do a whole lot. He's very obsessed with characters who have a lot, like, there are obsessive as well. Yeah. That's it. That's something that seems to attract him, you know, at least, you know, to the characters in a lot of ways. Um, but I think we kind of agree that Manhunter, uh, although very respected in its time, I, I think is looking pretty dark. It has an Compared aged, to some of the thrillers that we have well. seen subsequently, yeah. this kind of feels like an episode of CSI stretched out to two hours yeah. with a really indulgent director. Yes. And uh, ouch to Michael Mann for that, but it's, that's how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a sick idea, Alex. It's sick. Go ahead, then. Telephone the police. Tell them there's a suitcase full of money, and you don't want it. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's talk about disposal. Who's going to do it? We all are, David. We're all going to do it. Each of us. You, me, and Juliet. I don't think I can. But Juliet, you're a doctor. You kill people every day. Is this necessary? I can't do it. Do you want to play or not? Okay, so... Uh... I may have pled guilty there for having a bias against David Lynch. Yeah. Uh, I will plead guilty here for having a bias for Danny Boyle. Yeah, I will there's say no that bias. He's just very, very good. Danny Boyle <laughs> makes great movies. He, he does. gives good movies. I have yet to see a bad Danny Boyle film. <laughs> um, um, not all of them are fantastic, but yes. like... But, uh, I, you know what? That's not true. I have. But, uh, I mean, they're, they're usually worth... A look, yeah. and uh, I find even the failures to have you know something that in them that make me say, "Yeah, I'm yeah." Glad as soon I as I said it. that, I all of a sudden my memory drifted towards the beach. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Shallow Grave uh, was his first film, and that's what yeah. we're going to talk about today. That stars Kerry Fox, Christopher Eccleston, and Ewan McGregor. Yeah, and uh, they play three. Uh, young flatmates who are looking for uh, a new member to their little group. Uh, One of the many interesting elements of this movie is how 
kind of unlikable our protagonists are. They all really are. Every, <laughs> they're, they're, they're from the opening scene we sort of realize that they're kind of shallow. Well, yes, and, yeah. and kind of assholes. Yeah. They seem to relish sort of uh, tormenting people who yeah. come to apply for the flat who just yeah. aren't cool enough to live with them. Yeah. Uh, they laugh loudly and to people's faces. Yeah. Uh, they enjoy. They enjoy. You know the joke of, you know, belittling someone. Yes. And they all mutually enjoy it. Yes. Uh, and these are our protagonists. Yeah. Typically, this is something that would work against me uh, yeah. for movies. I don't like it when there's nobody that I can identify with at all. Yeah. Um, but this movie has such energy to yeah. it. And the stakes of the danger, of the, uh, of the, of the adventure that they, or misadventure that they get involved yeah. in, uh, you, you're on their side just because of the evil that they're up against yeah. and because of the story being told. How are they going to untangle themselves from this trap yeah. that they put themselves in? Yes. Uh, which, you know, uh, again, what did you think of Shallow Grave? Um, you know, I, it conjures up memories of Edgar Allan Poe with a telltale heart in a lot of ways. That was one of the things that sort of, you know, rang very true. Um, what, you know, coming back to this movie because it's been a long time since I've seen Child Grave. I forgot how good all three performances are. Yeah. Um, really. Uh, now I say Christopher Excelston. You say it. Uh, I thought it was Eccleston. Eccleston. But I could Christopher be wrong. Eccleston. We'll debate on that. Mm -hmm. um, he's really, really good in this, and it's, it's his arc that I find the most intriguing. Um, you know what happens to him. Uh, in a lot of ways, I see him. You know, kind of as you know the closest to a victim out of all of the three characters where he right off the bat, I mean, he does sort of succumb to it, uh, to, you know, accepting the money, but he knows right off the bat that it's a bad idea to keep the, uh, keep the money and just his arc yeah. and what he has to do to sort of, you know, keep the money I thought was really, really good. Basically the story is that they do indeed find a flatmate that's cool enough yeah. to live with him, but he promptly dies of a drug overdose. Yes. They find him in his room, and they find that he has a case full of money. Yeah. And rather than report the death to the police, they or, or eventually decide to turn the money. Yeah. They decide that they will dispose of the body themselves and attempt to keep the money. Yeah. And of course, nothing goes smoothly at all. Yeah. Um, the turning point, as far as the group of three friends, you know, I think being irreparably severed yeah. is when they draw straws to see yeah. who will have to actually do the dismemberment of yeah. the corpse yeah. and uh, Christopher Eccleston ends up having to do it uh, after a, a protracted scene yeah. uh, and uh, he being the one to get his hands dirty on top of being the one who was the least interested in doing it yeah. that I think breaks him Yeah, of course it does and uh, his deterioration at once makes him a stronger, more confident person, mm -hmm. but also a much more dangerous, self-destructive person. Yes. Um, I think that the Carrie Fox and Ewan McGregor characters change less. I think with Carrie Fox... Well, I think McGregor's... Yeah, his arc, he, yeah, he, I don't think he changed a, changed a whole bunch, to be perfectly honest. He's Carrie Fox, clearly... I think, starts to show her spots a little bit more. Yeah. I think yeah. that... Uh, you, her some of her falseness sort of comes to light a little bit through it. Yeah. But they're all essentially who they we were introduced to. Yeah. Very selfish, self interested, you know, yeah. kind of jerky people. Yeah. Um, but they get in the situation that's way over their heads. Yeah. And these uh, guys who are hunting them, these hitmen, are seriously bad news. Yes. Well, the one thing I love, well, there's lots of things I love about this movie. 
but also, if you look at, you know, uh, kind of that, Ewan McGregor's character, what's his name? I can't uh, remember the name of the character uh, in the movie. IMDb will help us. Yeah. Anyways, his character is clearly a sociopath in a lot of ways. If you look at, you know, he's clearly leading the charge in a lot of, so the bad, bad behavior has no remorse whatsoever. If you look at, you know, that character as a, you know, the sociopath who sort of falls into a rather tricky situation, I find that movie, you know, lots of fun to watch. Uh, see, uh, where I, I, my thing with Hugh McGregor, like, he works at a gossip magazine. Yes. I, I, think his character has just sort of embraced the bullshit. He's yeah. one of these super cynical people who's like, yeah. the world is shit, so why fight it? Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's not something that you can look up to. Yeah. But Carrie Fox will basically turn on the charm if it will help yeah. her get her what she needs. She's, she's much more of a master manipulator. Yeah. I would actually say she's more closer to being a genuine sociopath uh, than than Ewan McGregor as far as how she will change but from he scene has, to scene. Carrie, the, the Carrie Fox character clearly has remorse for a lot of things. I mean, she's still clearly, a, I think, a villain. Yeah, but I think we disagree on her. Yeah. I, I don't think she has any remorse in her at all, <laughs> but uh, that's me. Uh, we'll, we will talk about the climax of the movie. Uh, one of the other things that I just wanted to I think when uh, David, is it David, the Christopher Christopher's Eccleston. char- Eccleston's character, yeah. when he starts to go truly mad, I think it's genuine you know, sympathy she does feel. There's a couple points where she clearly does show remorse, yeah. even scolding the Ewan McGregor's character. But maybe, I see the way I interpreted it is that she's she very was, Lady Macbeth. I'll say that she much. was aligning herself with who she figured was going to win this. Yeah. Ewan McGregor is all talk, as I was saying. There's a yeah. falseness to him. Yeah. Uh, they have to talk Eccleston into doing it, but when it came down to it, Eccleston will get his hands dirty. Yeah, and Eccleston is capable of great violence. Yes, and. Uh, uh, if it came down to a fight between Eccleston and McGregor, Eccleston yeah. was probably going to come out on top. Yeah. Um, Eccleston has holding all of the cards, and so all of a sudden she was sleeping with him. Yeah. Right. Well, no, I, I agree. She's very manipulative, and she, you know, makes obviously some bad moral choices. Yeah. Um, and they're all bad. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah, not yeah. Oh, no, like, her especially, yeah. but I don't think I agree that you say that uh, that she feels remorse, or more so than anyone else in the movie does. I. I okay. Well, I'll just disagree. <laughs> but here's one question the, the lighting once again in this movie is very very important there's a lot of you know bright reds but McGregor's room is shot in blue very different from the other characters and I kind of wondered if you knew why um, I, I don't know exactly I, I at the time I sort of uh, interpreted it like yeah. he's a photographer slash journalist that maybe yeah. had a dark room going on in there yeah but I think it was probably just a stylistic choice yeah um he's living in some shadows I don't know yeah once again there's also themes of voyeurism that's another yeah, that's one thing that's almost prevalent throughout this movie yeah Eccleston ends up locking himself yeah. in the attic of the building drilling yeah. holes in all the ceilings and basically spying on everything and everyone yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's part of his deterioration yeah Eccleston has kind of made a monster, whereas I think that maybe Carrie Fox and Ian McGregor were already monsters. It was basically, you know, two wolves living with a sheep in yeah. a lot of ways, and they managed, instead of eating the sheep, they managed to create it into... They turned more, it into a greater mar- wolf, monster wolf, than either wolf, of them yes. were themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we should talk about the end of the movie, so we're going to go deep into spoiler territory. Yeah, but we haven't uh, spoiled a lot of movies yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... I just one of my things as far as I, why I don't think that Carrie Fox's character has any remorse in her. Yeah, 
there is an elaborate fight sequence where the three of them, uh, Eccleston and Carrie Fox, are going to leave with the money and abandon yeah. you and McGregor. Yeah. And uh, he could have let them leave, but uh, Eccleston gets a little bit rough with Carrie Fox, and McGregor loses a temper. Uh. A fight ensues. Uh. Eccleston ends up dead, and you and McGregor ends up with a knife in his shoulder. Oh, yes. Carrie Fox then takes off her shoe. Yeah. Drives the knife through his shoulder, pins him to the floor. Yeah. Smiles at him. Yeah. And then picks up the money and yes. leaves. Yes. Or what she thinks is the money. Yeah. No, it's That's a gr- where I see there's no remorse. Is she sorry that Eccleston is dead? No. Is she sorry that she pinned you and McGregor to the ground? No. Is she sorry that she's going to, like, walk away with all the money when she gets split it? No. Not only is she not sorry, she smiles at him. I she, I agree. It's she's very very evil, and we are probably seeing some of her true nature. Yeah. The only problem is before all the the shit starts happening, there's a general care between you and McGregor scene. They, uh, there's a flirtation actually, and general a motherling qualities that she has towards Christopher's characters. Yeah. Again, so, I put that towards manipulation. She knew both of the guys liked her, yeah. and she could manipulate them by exploiting that. Um, she wanted the money and she was going to do anything it took to get it. And that was the same game all of them were playing. Yeah. And that doesn't make her better or worse than any of them, but I do not buy the angle that she's, she feels any amount of guilt about it. Really? In fact, I think the only time we genuinely see her feeling bad is in the airport scene when she opens the case and realizes that none of the money is there. She can't go back. She's burned all of her bridges. Yeah. And now she's got nothing, and she has to start over with yeah. a new life. Yeah. Uh, and she cr- howls and cries over that because yeah. she has lost she, the game. She, you know, she's gotten her just desserts, if you will. <laughs> but um, are we happy that you and McGregor wins? No, not really, because <laughs> he's, as I said, his character is a sociopath. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you, it's you, you know, you might be, you might give him a round of applause for being the most sinister. And, yeah. What not? But, I mean, it is a collection of three people that you really do not like. The way I interpret the end of the film, obviously, Eccleston is no more. Yeah. The cops know what happened, but yeah. according to all the evidence, Carrie Fox left him for dead and split with the money. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what superficial legal charges he would have, but my guess is that he would get away with the cash. We're meant to believe that. I mean, I, I'm sure if, you know, reality sort of kicked in and the police investigated all, you know, all of this, and yeah, I don't think he'd keep, keep well, no, he's hiding the money. Yeah, she disappears. She's she, just gone. He's hiding the money. Yeah. So, uh, so basically, he, it, yeah. he gets slapped on the wrists and yeah. goes home and keeps the money, is yeah. the way I interpret it. Yeah, that's true. It's an interesting movie, and uh, it's got a real momentum to it. It's got a real energy to it, which yeah. a lot of uh, Danny Boyle's movies have. Yeah. Um, you can tell right away that you're in the hands of a really gifted director. Yeah, no, and it has that the great cast opening, is equally and strong, that too. Great, that great opening monologue by uh, Christopher Eccleston's, or <laughs> Eccleston's character, excuse me. Yeah, um, yeah it, it's... it's a very quick, like, 96-minute, yeah. fairly exciting watch. Yeah. Once um, again, the lighting is so good in this yeah. movie. I, I love the, the the set of the loft as well. It's really, really good. I mean, that's the, the fact that the majority of this movie takes place in that loft. Elements of this movie you've seen before, yeah. but I, I think, like, bringing this cast to the fold, I, it's kind of too bad that Carrie Fox hasn't really erupted. Yeah, she disappeared kind of after, after this, because at the time, these, I sort of thought... Well, here's this big movie with that just came out of nowhere, and it yeah. sort of introduced the world to Eccleston some really... and Ewan McGregor have gone on to much, you know. Yeah, but she. I mean, I heard one. I, I, I saw her. I saw on the poster for some art film a couple of years ago, but 
She's in that Canadian independent movie, uh, The Hanging Garden. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. She, she doesn't seem to have hit the heights that the others had. And I think she was really good in the movie. She's so. really good in this movie. Uh, anyway, uh, overall, yeah, big thumbs up for Shallow Grave. Anything yeah. else you want to say about Shallow Grave? No, that's about it. I have this condition. A condition? It's my memory. Amnesia. No, 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 no. It's different from that. Since my injury, I can't make new memories. Everything fades. If we talk for too long, I'll forget how we started. And next time I see you, I'm not going to remember this conversation. What's the last thing that you do remember? My wife. That's sweet. Dying. Lenny! I guess I've already told you about my condition. Oh, well, only every time I see you. You don't remember where you've been or what you've just done. No, I can't make new memories. It's like waking. It's like you just woke up. When you find this guy, what are you going to do? I'm going to kill him. Maybe I can help you find him. Are you sure you want this? My wife deserves vengeance. Do not trust her. She's going to use you to... Memento. Memento. I have a confession to make. Bring it. About Christopher Nolan, though. Okay. Christopher Nolan makes good movies. Mm-hmm. He hasn't really made a terrible movie, or even I'd say mediocre movie. What's the one thing about Christopher Nolan I can't quite explain the rewatchability of these films are sometimes very taxing, and I don't know why. I've tried watching Inception three times since I, since I first saw it, and thought, "Wow, this is a really good movie," and I've turned it off because I've either fallen asleep or something else. Um, I have yet to see The Prestige again. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't think I'm going to watch the you know the third Batman film because it's an all right movie. Christopher Nolan is uh, but the Hollywood's number one boy right now. Yeah, uh, everybody was, loves yeah. Nolan, and Memento was his first big movie. He did a, a little indie called Following, I think. Yeah, and it, it's not bad. I mean, it's 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 his first movie, but this is his first big. Yes, I this is the one that movie. essentially made him. I have a thing again. I, I seem to have a thing with all of these directors. I'm snobby. But I think Christopher Nolan is a really good director. Yes. I don't think he's amazing. Really? And a lot of people think he is amazing. Um, I, I think that he really, he, he's got this thing where his movies look and feel so right. And yeah. again, he has a real good feel for action yeah. and, and mm-hmm. uh, complex set sequences. Yeah. But there's a predisposition to all of his movies that he wants people to also see how smart this movie is yeah this is not just technically well made there's a lot of brains behind this movie mm-hmm. even my batman movies are going to be smarter than any other batman movies that have ever been made mm-hmm. and that's all well and good mm-hmm. but i find with all of these movies yeah. almost all of them because they present themselves in this sort of hoity-toity we're super smart blockbuster fashion yeah. will have one or two plot elements that loudly kind of speak against it and go well but that's a loophole. That doesn't really make 100% sense. Mm-hmm. All the layers in time in, in Inception, I don't think, fall together perfectly. Yeah. You know, uh, I think that the, the, the twist in Prestige can be untwisted. I think that, yeah. uh, you know, the super Machiavellian plan of the Joker in The Dark Knight yeah. works again the whole against the whole theme of chaos that they were working into the movie. Yeah. Uh, but he kind of trips over his own feet in that sense of saying, look how yeah. smart I am. Yeah. I don't think it's present in Memento as much. No, I mean, Memento in a lot of ways, 
it, you know, it's it's they trim the fat on it. It works well. It's what I would call a gimmick film. Yes. And I and I that's the one thing I missed. The, you know, the 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 time period that Memento came out. A lot of interesting filmmakers were trying new things, and that just ha- doesn't happen anymore. I um, will say, without the structure of the movie yeah. being as it is, if they just told the story in a linear fashion, yeah. ho hum. Yes. Or, I mean, maybe not ho-ho, maybe mildly interesting, but yeah. certainly not. But it is the presentation. Yes. And the presentation is, uh, since we're going to talk about the plot of this movie. Yes, we're, uh, gonna, we're, we're spoiling things early. Our main character, uh, played by Guy Pierce, yeah. has a condition where he basically has no long-term memory. Uh, short-term or short, memory. Probably no short-term, short-term memory. memory. He forgets everything. Every few minutes is just yeah. sort of reset. Yeah. Uh, so as such, he has to keep notes all the time. He tattoos things on his body. Yeah. And to further complicate things, when we meet him, he's on a mission to avenge the, the, the death of his wife. Yes. He's trying to hunt down the person responsible uh, for breaking him and destroying his life. Yeah. And it's made very difficult because of this disability. And uh, he doesn't know, nor do we, if he can trust the people around him. Yeah. But we do know from the very first frame of this movie that he does kill somebody. Yeah. Who that person is and whether or not oh, they're I a guilty we, party, I think we, we don't find person. out we, uh, until the end. Yeah, that's true. But I think it's pretty obvious who that person is. I don't... I mean... That's not the big secret. Right. Yeah. But uh, the, the movie, you know, works backwards. Yes. Is basically... There's sequences that are in black and white, sequences that are in color. Yeah. And uh, once you sort of figure out the pattern of the movie, yeah. uh, you kind of... It, it's an interesting approach, because this is not how Shelby would be interpreting things. Yes. It's not that track on it. I don't know how you could approach that, Yeah. whereas the information is given, and then somehow we are forced to forget it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you couldn't. But yeah. So instead, we, we have the story told backwards. Yeah. W- one thing that uh, sometimes either really works for Christopher Nolan, or, or it can fall flat on its face, is Nolan loves to do the whole messing with the chronological order of time and also, you know, the idea of memory and how we perceive it. There are, there are, that's a consistent theme in all of his films. Yeah. Sometimes it works. It works in Memento. It works, I think, in the first Batman movie. I think it even kind of works in The Dark Knight and, you know, The Prestige. That that all works where, you know, you're, you're telling that story with all, you know, the characters' emotions and whatnot. Um, but when you play it in Project Lionel Order, it can sometimes sort of upset the balance like it did in, say, His Man of Steel, where I didn't really feel anything for the characters in a lot of ways, just because it, it the order, it is not linear. Right. Uh, it, it can take you out of the picture, but it somehow works in Memento. Zack um, Snyder directed Man of Steel, didn't he? Yes, but yeah. Nolan wrote it. Oh, did he? Okay. Yes, he did. Uh, I haven't seen Man of Steel. No comment. Yeah. Um, one thing that I really did love, uh, we are given a, a backstory exposition of a case file of this Shelby Leonard. <clears throat> yes. And uh, it's seen in these little black and white vignettes with Stephen Tobolowski, who is... Well, Leonard is Guy Pierce. Yeah, uh, but yeah. <clears throat> we're seeing another character ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Where, where, who supposedly yes. has the same yes. illness. Yeah, yes, I know. Yes, yes. And basically this is a case file, of, or, or, or is being presented as a case yeah. file, as somebody who has a similar affliction. Yeah, it's a largely wordless performance from Tobolowski, but I really like it, yeah. and uh, it, it basically highlights the most interesting aspects of the yeah. film. Yeah, um, the other thriller elements are good and well enough handled. There's yeah. an exciting chase sequence, and there's yeah. uh, people you don't know who to trust or not. Yeah. 
um, Carrie Ann Moss uh, and Joe Pantoliano both at times take advantage of this All character. the characters are, are guilty of that. They're all very manipulative, but that's classic film noir. Yeah. Carrie Ann Moss basically uses him to chase a, a, a bad dude out of town. Yeah. And Joe Pantoliano, who knows how, how, how long and how many times he's been using yeah. Leonard. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of hard to really like those characters. Yeah. I think Carrie Ann Moss's character feels a little bit guilty about it. Yeah. But she also knows that he won't feel bad about it because he'll forget. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if that absolves her, but she she knows that she's not she's causing... She's a sad... Her. I have a finer more sad than anything else, yeah. but... Um, yeah. Where I think, again, we got to, for me, in order to understand, uh, I don't know if this works against the movie, but it's one of the things that uh, I think of when I think of Memento. Mm -hmm. uh, we go to the end where we mm -hmm. find out that, yeah, he's killed the Joe Pontoliano character, this cop who's been abusing him for mm -hmm. basically a clean house for whatever he wants. Yeah. But we see Guy Pierce's character consciously, like, realize that he's been duped. Yeah. And know for a fact that this quest that he's on is, it has been resolved. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that basically he's trying to not only avenge his own death, but, you know, uh, sort of redeem himself for his responsibility. Yes. Uh, in his wife's death. Yeah. Because as we learned that uh, his wife didn't believe that he had this illness. She didn't die in the initial attack, as yeah. we originally told. Yeah. She uh, li lived with him, and uh, she couldn't understand that he wouldn't remember anything, mm -hmm. and it started actually driving her crazy. Yeah. Uh, so much so that uh, she basically... I don't know if she commits suicide by raising the dose on her she did. Uh, uh, diabetic yeah. medication, thinking yeah. that he would know not to give her that much dosage. Like, clearly he would know that, but yeah. he didn't. Yeah. And he, yeah, so she went into a coma and ended up dying. He was responsible. Yeah. And all he has in these little 15 or 20 minute bursts of memory yeah. is a quest to redeem himself for this. That's the only thing that he can hang on to. Yeah. So he consciously chooses to continue that quest. You've got to, I think if you take the fact that Leonard is an antagonist and, and not a protagonist in a lot of ways, I mean, I sort of see him as a bit of a villain. I mean, I mean there's a tragic flaw to him that this was done to him. But he does, in the end, make the choice. He does. He will. He knows for a fact. He'll forget it in a few minutes, yeah. but he knows that fact, too. Yeah. But he knows for the fact that he's going to end up killing another innocent person. Yeah. But he needs the quest. Yeah. So no. he makes the choice to do it. Yeah. So in the end, yeah, this is sort of the origin story of some kind of villain, <laughs> supervillain, mass murderer. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he would never horrifyingly be convicted because he is so damaged that no court in the world <laughs> would convict him. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's kind of a bitter little number when yeah. you sort of put all the pieces down. Good does not triumph over evil in a lot of ways in this film. But uh, it is an interestingly told story. No, yeah. It no, is a well-acted story. Yes, it is. And uh, actually, Moss I would put it pretty high in the catalog of Christopher Nolan films. Yeah. That said, I would probably stop short of calling it amazing. Well, yeah. I'd see, that's another thing is you don't... It, it, well, a lot of criticism of, of Christopher Nolan with his films is, you know, you don't sympathize with his characters a whole lot even in sort of something like uh inception or insomnia it's hard to become uh, to make emotional connections to him and i don't quite know why um it, you know they're they're beautiful looking movies um i think he's you know the attention to detail once and once again is very good 
but a lot of characters you, you kind of you, you strain to understand their emotional journey and you need to identify with those characters at some point yeah well you don't necessarily have to identify with everybody in the movie but it's nice to have somebody to hang your hat on yeah and uh yeah yeah, at the at the end of the day, we were watching the story of about bad people doing bad things, and that's yeah. the end. But you know what? If we're honest, a lot of the movies we watch are that. Uh, a lot of the comedies, interestingly, that people will watch or that I really like are yeah. about you know rich people doing uh, bad things, being and... petty and shitty, and uh, you know mourning how blasé and uh, unfulfilling their lives are, you yeah. know, and uh, really taken in the scope of the horrible shit that goes on every day. It's yeah. hilarious that we derive entertainment from it. Nolan loves to play with the sequence of time in his movies, and that's something that works very well with this movie. Um, is it, what else? I miss the time that this movie came out, like I said. This film reminded me of a time when Directors took chances with with their films. You know, it reminds me of that Mike Mike Figgis film um, was it Time Code. Time Code, you remember that one? Yeah, with all the split screen. Yeah, we're, we're, we're filmmakers were actually playing with the medium of film, and, and that's was challenging. Um, but uh, yeah, no, and it has all the characteristics of a film noir. That femme fatale with Carrie on Malos, the the lighting of it, but um, there's something that doesn't elevate it to to you know a great film, and I can't quite put my finger on it yeah well i know a lot of people would argue that point i know that yeah. some people think memento is like the most amazing film ever made yeah. and it's a really good movie and yeah. actually like i said i would rank it high in, in nolan's uh yeah. list of films but um uh it's not one that i would revisit again and again and again i don't think necessarily yeah. give you a briefing about the institution all i know is it's a mental hospital the criminally insane. Gentlemen, welcome to Shutter Island. You're hereby required to surrender your firearms. We are duly appointed federal marshals. But during your stay, you will obey protocol. Is that understood? We take only the most dangerous and damaged patients, ones no other hospital can manage. These are all violent defenders, right? They've hurt people, murdered them in some cases. In almost all cases, yes. We try to provide them with a measure of calm. Personally, Doctor, I'd have to say screw their sense of calm. So this prisoner escapes in the last 24 hours. We don't know how she got out of her room. So another fantabulous director here, Martin Scorsese. One of the best. Um, he has been... He tethered himself a lot with uh, DiCaprio the last 10 years or so of his career. Not every movie has DiCaprio, but most of them do. We've yeah. had like The Aviator, Gangs of New York, The Departed, uh, Shutter Island, and now The Wolf of Wall Street. Yes. Oh, am I missing one? No, uh, no, you got them all. I was kind of unsure about the marriage for the first while. I, I'm I surprised. It, I'm surprised Scorsese did a horror film. I guess I mean, we did have Kate Fear. That's more of a thriller than it is horror. But, uh, the, but as far as the marriage of DiCaprio and, and Scorsese, yeah. a little rocky for me at first. Yeah. It wasn't until The Departed where I really felt like, yeah, that 100% worked for me. Yeah. DiCaprio was good in the role, and it was the right script for Scorsese and yeah. Gay. And, uh, you know, here we come to Shutter Island. Yeah. Um, and again, he's... Uh, we're, we're at the beginning of the movie, we, we see him portraying 
an investigator as, yeah. as far as the story is going. And uh, he and his new partner show up to this uh, island asylum yeah. uh, to investigate uh, a, missing a, di- a disappearance. A disappearance. Who is patient 67, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so on its face, we're looking at another sort of procedural, but set in this spooky sort of gothic asylum. Yeah. And it's a period piece. Uh, is it set in the 30s or 40s? I, I do know. believe. It's, it's definitely after World War II, so it's, yeah. it's, I think, the start of the 50s, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, it's star-studded because Scorsese draws it's in the It's an amazing cast, and you sit down and think about it. <laughs> Mark uh, Ruffalo. Uh, uh, Patricia Clarkson, I think. Haley, or what's his name? The guy from uh, Watchmen. Um, uh, Max von Sydow. Yeah, Max von Sydow. Emily uh, Mortimer. Ted Levine is also very good in a very limited role as well. Michelle uh, Williams. Uh, yes. Yeah, Michelle Williams is very good. But Scorsese usually has amazing casts. That's just one of those things. If Scorsese calls, you pick up the phone. Yeah, you <laughs> like, say, you yes, sir, I will be here at this time. Chances are it was going to be worth your time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's also one of the better DiCaprio performances out of all the Scorsese films. Absolutely, because um, it's one, a tricky performance it to is, give. Yeah. Uh, and again, we give spoilers for this, but before we get deep into this review, I'm going to encourage anybody listening if who you has not haven't seen, seen Shutter Island, Island please, please watch let, it before you listen to this yes, movie. Yes, because now we are getting to the meat of the movie, and that has there's, to spoil some pretty big things. There's no way to talk, to really talk about this movie without getting so into it. So, you've been warned. If you haven't seen yeah. the movie, turn off the podcast now. Yeah. now we always have movie. spoilers, but I do not, this, again, specially mention. This, I think this and Fight Club will have to have some major spoilers <laughs> yeah. off the bat, because we have to talk about it. It's uh, tough. Yeah. Uh, basically, what we are being treated to, what we are seeing, is yeah. a fairly bold uh, experimental procedure, psychological I, I would, procedure. I would argue a play. <laughs> you know, the one thing, it's kind of interesting, I, the first time I was watching Shutter Island, it, uh, the first thing that popped to my head is, I wonder if Murat Saad by Peter Weiss was an inspiration, because if you sit up and think about it, you've got a bunch of inmate staff, the assignment inmate staff, along with a lot of the inmates putting on a grand play a grand show for a grand show for the dicaprio character he's actually an inmate of the asylum they basically put him on a boat drove him in a circle and drove him back to the island and they all let him play this role because he's convinced that he's not who he really is yes that he's actually an investigator and that he's trying to get the bottom of this case yeah so i think uh, as a a last-ditch effort from the ben kingsley character yeah who I believe his intentions are good. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I I think he, he he's it's, he's probably the most tra- well, I wouldn't say the most tragic of the characters, but we're at a point with he the, is definitely a good one. We're at a we're at a point with this patient, I guess, that yeah. as far as they're concerned, that the only thing they can do is lobotomize him. Yeah, and as a last ditch effort to try and shake him out of his psychosis, which he does, uh, they they successful. do this elaborate play for him. Yeah. Of course, we don't know this. As far as we're concerned, DiCaprio really is, yeah. uh, you know, who he says he is. Yeah. But everybody around him is acting so suspiciously. Yeah. So is he being driven mad? Are we? Is how we interpret it? Or is there some huge uh, thing going on behind the scenes? Yeah. Um, uh, so the bait and switch in the movie works really well. Yeah. And I think that the central performance by DiCaprio, as a person who is you know, living out a fantasy in their head 
and slowly coming to realize it, yeah. but fighting against that knowledge. Yeah. So you can sort of see him reinvest in the in the in investigating when he gets uh, something that really shakes him. Yeah. Uh, you know, he has to kind of reorient, but yeah. he does it again and again and again. Yeah. And sort of when you watch the movie the second time, the story is about can he wake himself out of the psychosis? Yeah. Can he get over it? Is he able to give over? And much like we discussed with Memento, uh, we find that he really needs to live this fantasy in order to live at all. Yeah. And that uh, at the end, as horrible as it sounds, death or lobotomy might actually be a relief for this character. Yeah. So uh, this I, is I, dark stuff. <laughs> I, I, I love the tragic ending. I love the fact that that the experiment actually did work and he's been knocked out of his psychosis. Yeah. I, I'm not really going to... We agree that he is very well knowingly go, going to the lighthouse to get to the lobotomized because he doesn't want to live with the guilt anymore. I what's can't the, remember what's, that line. That I have it right saying. here. I'd rather not living as a monster or I want or dying as a good man yeah. is, is that line. Yeah. I'd rather live as a I'd rather die as a good man or die as a good as man a and not live as a monster. Yeah. And he says that to the Mark Ruffalo character, the, the his his doctor essentially, yeah, his who doctor. he thought was his partner, but it was, was yeah. His and at that point, you sort of realize the horror that Ruffalo now he he realizes that it did work, and he and he lets. The patient off go to, to essentially be, be brain dead. Yeah, I found that wonderfully tragic and beautiful in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know a horrifying true element in it that is uh, a way that uh, yeah. the mentally ill were treated. Yeah, uh, um, and in some places I guess still are. Yeah, what is the name of you know of the head prison guard? Uh, it's Lynch. Uh, what's his name? That oh like, right, the guy from Zodiac. Yes. Um, John Carroll Lynch. Yes. Well, you have to give special nod to him. He's, he's very, very good. really disgusted by this whole yeah. uh, puppet show that's going on. Yeah. Not because he feels any sympathy, I don't think, for the DiCaprio character. No. Just that he's acted, you know, asked to kowtow to this psycho. Right? Yeah, and I, I think he's more, I mean, it's partial sort of fear because he's just, you know, recently, what's triggered all this whole thing was the fact that he brutally assaulted, you know, another inmate. Yeah. Um, and now he has to, you know, sort of, you know, play along with this game in a lot of ways. I, th yeah, there's that. Um, I think what makes this movie a horror movie for me, it's the mood and atmosphere. Well, yeah. mood and atmosphere, absolutely. But it, it does, it is kind of a procedural sort of Twilight Zone bait and switch. Yeah. But for me, and this is a personal thing, mm -hmm. when we see his true backstory. Yeah, he's had these visions of him failing to save children in the war, uh, you know, in, in, and we've had visions of these weird sort of living doll-like mm -hmm. creatures, and we find out, you know, the truth of it is, is that his sort of wife, who was left at home with the kids and grown despondent and ill herself, he came home one day to find that she had drowned yeah. all of the children. Mm -hmm. And there's a sequence with DiCaprio mm -hmm. pulling these bodies out of the water and screaming and howling that almost makes this movie a one-timer for me. I mean, it isn't because I, I wanted to watch it again to see that the all of the shell game that Chris was playing Really worked. well done, though. But that sequence is utterly gut-wrenching. Yeah. And DiCaprio is 
amazing in it. Yeah. Like, uh, I finally sort of get what Scorsese was saying. I mean, I don't hate DiCaprio, but I certainly didn't think he was one of our, you know, most treasured assets as an entertainer. Really? And Scorsese obviously does. And uh, the more he works with Chris Scorsese, I think the more he starts to earn the reputation he has. Really? See, I think he'd already done a lot of good work up, at, uh, up until the point he even started working with Scorsese. Yeah. You have to mention, you know, he got, he'd already been nominated for Gilbert Grape at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think he's really good at the basketball diaries. Say what you will about Titanic. Yeah, it was popular. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think he's really good in the man, the man with two masks, which is light fluff. I mean, oh, the man in the iron mask. The man in the iron mask. Oh, that's a dreadful movie. It's a, it's, it's a bad movie, movie <laughs> but I think he's good in it. Anyway, yeah, I, I, he's sort of this baby. Blood face. Diamond was Blood Diamond before this. So, uh, I think around well, it was before this, but uh, yeah, Blood Diamond. See, he's really good in Blood Diamond. So I think he'd earned enough acting jobs. I agree. Working with Scorsese has helped him. I think he's a solid actor. Like yeah. he's good, but uh, you know, he it wasn't until The Departed that he was really knocking me over. I thought he was great in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. He had yeah. a great young performance there, yeah. but mainly I thought he was a capable, solid actor okay. who all of the girls were screaming over, and that mm-hmm. made him very popular. Yeah, I I, I didn't believe him as a heavyweight actor basically until like the departed and especially this one shutter island yeah um and that's just me i've always sort of saw him as that baby space teen idol guy I think uh, he's and he, he kind of finally finally outgrew it yeah um but it took a while <laughs> for me anyway really? but we're not talking about dicaprio we're talking about shutter island and yeah. uh I am noticing a lot of things on the plus column here, not too many things on the minus. Yeah. Um, the, the sort of dour overall uh, atmosphere mm-hmm. and the sort of harsh, ugly themes of the story being told maybe yeah. won't make this one that will get revisited again and again and again. It's I enjoyed, not a happy I, little... I enjoyed seeing it again. Yeah, um, uh, But it is a very well-made movie by yeah. a very, you know, you can tell you're in the hands of a very capable filmmaker. Yeah. I read this uh, interview with uh, both DiCaprio and Scorsese once. I think mean, no, it was just with Scorsese, and he talked about he admitted that in the past ten, fifteen years he'd been sort of forced to make, you know, a couple of films that he had. He couldn't get out of the deal. Right. And I often wonder if Shutter Island was one of those films that he's talking about. Really? Uh, I don't know. I just he he admitted that you know in the past and in the past, especially in the past fifteen years. He had sort of gotten himself involved in deals and then wanted to get out and couldn't have. Right. The project and changed, but the, he was already committed. Or, something like that. I mean, it's one of the reasons why that other film that he's just now doing about those Jesuit priests in Japan, <laughs> what was that one called, Passion or something, um, you know, hasn't gotten made yet. Um, but I often sort of want to shut it out. It's really, really good. I mean, even as a classic horror film, um, there's a lot of things to love. I love the fact that you don't. You see the after effects of the violence, but you never really see a lot of it. Right. I think that's you know a, you know a great technical little skill that he had with Shutter Island as well. Um, I love the fact that some of the characters they aren't really characters; they're caricatures, almost like the play Everyman, uh, where you know it's also you know a statement on violence and how it does truly affect people. That's one that Ted Levine monologue. I forgot how good Ted Levine could possibly be, <laughs> give, you know, given with the right people. And here's a shiny example. His monologue there, what was it? Uh, basically, that monologue on war and violence uh, is done extremely well. Um, you know, just the gothic, gothic setting. Um, I don't know. There's lots of things I sort of connected. I just connected with this film. 
Um, I think it's probably one of the better DiCaprio performances of his career. It's yeah. just that kind of journey. I, think, I mean, everybody has a shell game to play, but especially yeah. DiCaprio, because, uh, you know, some of the staff are better at the ruse than others, and some yeah. of them uh, like what's going on more than others. Yeah. You can sort of see that in their performances the second time around. Yeah. Um, and the other inmates being sort of confused and put off by all of a sudden seeing everybody kowtowing yeah. <laughs> to him. That God Loves Violence monologue by Ted Levine, I just remember the name of it, is really well done. I sort of almost encourage you to watch that, just that scene again. Right. Um, yeah. It's a worthy watch, and uh, it's going to rank high on the list for me. Yep. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Why? How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? Wait, let me start earlier. Like many of you, I was stuck. No, you can't die from insomnia. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I prayed for a different life. Soap. I make and I sell soap. And this is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Okay. It hit me in the ear. It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Can I be next? We just gave it a name. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. After Fight Club, we all started seeing things differently. You're gonna have to keep me up all night. And she ruined everything. You're not into her, are you? No. God, not at all. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. He had a plan. So now on to Fight Club. Yep. Uh, and this movie made a, a lot of noise when it first came out. Yeah. Uh, I think it's still. I think it's still making noise. It, it's dirty and it's depraved and it encourages the terrible values and uh, uh, yeah, it's all those things. But it's also kinetic. It's amazingly well made. Yep. The acting in it is pretty incredible. Can you think of any other film quite like it? <laughs> Not necessarily. Um, I mean, there's plenty of movies where uh, there's a, a reveal about one of the central characters yeah. that drops in the third act, but yeah. uh, I've not seen any movie told with this sort of level of adrenaline, panache, and brains. This movie almost kind of downloads and instead, <laughs> instead of just, you know, you're, you're viewing it. It is a very aggressive movie. And uh, that's the theme, the sort of the male aggressive sort of hormonal... Uh, angry monkey id that is inside of all men that has been suppressed and suppressed and suppressed for so long allowed off the tether uh, that's what the movie sort of explores and that's what the movie kind of tries well, to do it explores be. a lot of things but, there's, there's lots of balls thrown in the air with this movie I think one thing that people are are almost afraid to examine that that it wants to ask that question it makes the suggestion the strong suggestion I should say that violence between men, especially young men, can be a healthy form of communication. And I think that idea turns a lot of people, especially a, a lot of women, off. Yeah. Because violence is it's such a tricky thing, especially in real life. It's quite a horrifying thing. And just the idea that it, it is you know something that creates a lot of positive... It's a healthy form of communication between men. And I think it is in a lot of ways. I sort of think back to... You know, the times when I wrestled with my brother, and I mean, he was, it never, I mean, it got intense, but it was, you know, we were, you know, communicating a lot of ways. It was something that, you know, we did every time that we saw each other for a while. There is, is there something inherently violent about men? 
Um, maybe. Or maybe just people in general. Yeah. Um, but we've been asked to express it, uh, and uh, understandably so, because yeah. we can't go around killing everybody we disagree with. Yes. Or, you know, uh, bashing the head of a romantic rival or yeah. anything like this. Um, I, 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 again, it's a complex issue. I don't mm-hmm. know exactly where I land on it. I like to think that men aren't complete monkey Neanderthals at no. all. But I do think there's an element of truth to the sort of thing. Uh, I heard this argument made that one of the reasons that uh, there's such a huge boon in like psychological illnesses like depression yeah. or in all of these sort of anxiety yeah. uh, illnesses uh, is because... We are advancing sociologically and technologically quicker than our bodies are. Yeah. So we spend our lives, most of us, sitting in front of a, a computer in a yeah. cubicle or whatever. Yeah. But we're not built to do that. Yeah. We're built to go hunt and gather. Yes. And uh, as a result, we get twitchy and we yeah. get upset. And there's some part of us that feels angry because we're not doing what we're supposed to do. Yeah. And this sort of tension, this and particularly the, the male aspect of that, yeah. is the nerve that has worked yeah. in, in Fight Club. Fight Club is one of the most homoerotic <laughs> films made by a major studio. You think? Oh, I, I think I know. Let, let, let's look at some of the facts. One, when, uh, you know, the, the movie you know, was finally coming out uh, and... Um, a lot of media was being, you know, being shown towards the writer of the book, um, who named once again currently escapes me, Chuck Palahniuk. Yeah, yeah. Um, a magazine, uh, uh, a magazine was going to out him. Right. Um, you know, you, you sort of force him to come out of the closet, and so he had to do it. That right off the bat is sort of when they may go, okay. Um, if you look how the men treat the Marla character, you sort of kind of, you know. I mean, it's very misogynistic, or can be viewed as very misogynistic. They really don't like a lot of women, and they're very a lot of the anger towards. And I'm not. This is not suggesting that you know gay men have anger towards women, but I, I kind of got the impression that the man was struggling with his sexuality. I mean, yes, they use her for sex, but. Uh, I still not think a... that you're. I think that the Top Gun it remains the most homoerotic movie ever made. But sure, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, 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 I'm not done. I, okay. The scene that uh, bells go off. It's the scene where uh, you know we we've been introduced to the Jared Leto character. You know, early in the film, he's quite around. The scene uh, where he Norton essentially turns him into. Lamb chops. <laughs> he pulverizes. It's somebody the line he uses. Gives the, the line I wanted to destroy, destroy something, something beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. You know why that line? Why, you know why that? Well, again, I don't know if I would hang a, 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 the whole movie as a, a parable. I kind of think it's a man fighting with with the fact that he certainly thinks he's gay. Okay. And well, I mean, just because the author is gay, I mean, for me, yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean they treated that. For me, this is about men. Yes. This is about the world of men. And, and he and, surrounds himself with a lot, a lot of and men. And Marla is the only girl in it. And basically, to Tyler Durden, she's essentially a fuck toy. And yes. to uh, the Edward Norton character... She's this exasperating person who he finds fascinating because it might be the one person that he's met who's as close to as crazy as he is. Yeah. Uh, so it's not a particularly positive performance of, or portrayal of a woman. But all of the men are intensely aggressive uh, yeah. and, and violent and acting out and love, love, love Fight Club. Yeah. Um, 
I don't, again, I think for me, it's, also it's like, more it's, about... It's also how some of the fights are staged as well. I mean, you've got shirtless men that find the violence orgasmic. If you, you know, there's some scenes where they are literally hugging each other towards the end and crying. They are bonding over violence. Yes. Um, but is it, is it necessarily sexual in nature? Well, that's whatever baggage you're going to bring to it. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> uh, I honestly think, yeah. honestly, that the book, the themes of the book and the movie are exploring yeah. go towards men. Not necessarily yes. homosexual men, yeah. just men. But yeah. that's me. Um, because I think that... Uh, Everybody can relate to this sort of feeling like we've had to bottle our, our, our true selves. Yeah. Uh, be that the desire to be with another man or the desire to yell when something pisses you off. Yeah. Or the desire to smash your fist on the table where you know that would be, you know, uh, interpreted as an ugly male behavior. Yeah. You know? uh, it's guess an so. honest expression of emotion. And if we have to respect the honest expression of emotion from women, why must we fear and hate a you know, honest <laughs> expression get, from men? I guess there's also that scene where they're talking about marriage where you know the, the pit character is saying how he phoned his father and what should he do next and he, he, one of the things is he trashes the institution of marriage I don't know Dirty sort of trashes the institution of everything he hates everything that's well. The writer obviously has a big fear of any sort of organized group, and uh, I say bravo to that. Tyler Durden is the character who has all the sex with Marla too, right? I mean, I we've think, gotten this deep into it, and yeah. we haven't really talked about the premise or anything of the movie. But again, I, I, I don't think imagine we're going to have to get to spoilers at this point. I don't imagine anybody listening to this <laughs> doesn't really know the premise of it. Yeah, but the Edward Norton character who is going through some sort of terrible psychological I issues, meets a fellow named Tyler Durden, yes. and he finds his life quickly, uh, uh, it basically yeah. falls apart. Yeah. Uh, and again, the big twist is that he is Tyler Durden. Yes. He is meeting his true self, and his true self is the male animus sort of let off the leash. Yeah. 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 That, that's basically the movie. Uh, we don't get that reveal till the end about the the the, the they, they are the same thing. characters for but, those for those yeah. who haven't quite figured it out. They yeah. are literally it, it's his alternate personality. Yeah. It's interesting how this movie is cast because the narrator we never do learn the character's his name. His name I do believe in the book. I've read the book and it does mention it. I think it is like rather pathetic you know, or not pathetic name, um, common name Jim I think is actually right. uh, the name of the character. It's interesting how they cast it, where obviously you get this sort of sheepish-looking Edward Norton, and then this almost kind of demigodish-looking <laughs> Brad Pitt character that is, yeah, you know, a lot of more, more women would find it sort of him attractive. Yeah. Um, but again, I guess it walks the line. You know, girls want to sleep with him, and guys kind of want to be him. You know, he's yeah. just generally appealing. He's I just the find ultimate macho sort of figure. This movie connected with a lot of males when the, my age when this movie came out. There was something about it. They kind of went, yeah, man, yeah. But, again, I think that both the book and the movie go over the board with the, the male aggression thing. Yeah. And uh, I, I think the first half of Fight Club is amazing. 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 Yeah. I think the second half of Fight Club is good. It does lag a little bit when it gets into the the, the, the whole cult storyline. Uh, I, I think that's just Palinuk, once again, sort of talking about his fear of any sort of organized group and how it 
how it attacks our individualism. You know, he becomes what he hates and fears the most, where he essentially becomes part of a, you know, I don't, he runs. He is a, a leader who, yeah. who rules unequivocally. Everybody yeah. will do what he says without question. Yeah. And almost overnight seems to have an, a net of people across the country, yeah. which I don't buy at all. Yeah. And I think that the movie does start to break down if you look too closely at it in some angles. I think that the establishment of the Fight Club, yeah. I can buy that the idea that a bunch of guys would think it would be cool to have a little basement room where they met and had, like, basically street fights in a controlled or semi-controlled environment yeah. and getting off on sort of the whatever violent energy that is. It's not yeah. my bag, but I yeah. know that there's an audience for it. Yeah. Um, but I don't get some guy coming out of a bar seeing an obviously crazy person beating the shit out of himself mm-hmm. and then asking... Can I be next? Can I learn from you? Because that is what happens if you yeah. want to interpret it, the events. A guy walks out of the bar and sees Tyler Durden and this and, and Edward Norton having this fight. Yeah. And he wants to be involved. There is that suspension of That disbelief. doesn't make sense. And yeah. like I say, the just the size of this cult and the rapidity in which it, it forms mm-hmm. I don't buy it all yeah I think the turning point of the movie is when the meatloaf character uh, dies yeah and there's this big his name was Richard Paulson Robert, so, Robert Paulson Robert Paulson yeah. thank you his name was Robert Paulson I think that's where the movie officially goes off the rails and whereas I could sort of blur my eyes and say this sort of felt like something that could exist in the real world yeah. we have now entered a full-on sort of satirical almost universe. This is the and prob- I missed the grounded reality of the first half of the movie. Yeah. This is the problem both with the movie and the novel. It's a, it's a common problem. I, you know, I think, you know, Chuck got obsessed with his whole f- fear of organized groups because a lot of ways it's very critical of any sort of support self-help group. No. Um, any sort of group that can stifle your individualism. And yeah, that that does hurt the story. Um, again, I, I don't know... I think that the characters are using these self-help programs, Marla and the Edward They're Norton addicted to them. They do go there because healing, hearing real people talk about real problems yeah. and cry somehow helps them cry. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, like, I think the people who are legitimately at the group are being helped. Yes. And these guys who are piggybacking the group, yes, they're exploiting the group and that makes them horrible. Yeah. But they are also getting something out of it too. So I don't know that I would agree that it's an argument against self-help, but I do agree that the fact that two of our main characters use self-help groups for their own personal, uh, you know, means, you know, again, this is a movie full of unlikable people. Yeah. Um, uh, the climax of the movie is very exciting and, you know, they rock some pixies yeah. and some buildings fall and it looks and feels cool and it feels like an apocalyptic, climactic end. A lot of people would sort of giggle off, you know, all the big credits, credit centers of the world would sort of explode because the, then it would go down to zero and a lot of their debt would kind of disappear. Uh, um, but, I mean, it, I there's love, no reality to the ending of this I movie. love the anti-capitalist themes as well in this movie yeah. as well. I mean, rah-rah for that. It's it's very energetic, it's very rapid, and it's yeah. like a race to the ending. And the ending, weirdly, does sort of feel right as far as the scale and spectacle of it, and yeah. then credits. Yeah. But, again, it's really started out being about something, yeah. and at the end, it is a slick, entertaining movie. And I would never say otherwise, but uh, I think it brings up a lot of cool issues, explores a lot of cool themes... 
and shows off some good acting and some good filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, it sort of like, it, it, it pushes itself out there and says, we are now cinema. We are strong. Yeah. But I don't think it's like an A-plus movie either. I think wow, there are really? flaws to Fight Club. And I think people there's should stop that... pretending that there aren't. There, there are, yeah, there's some suspension of disbelief with this movie. Um, I like the film that it, there's no other film quite like it. It was and it, it, it was exploring some themes that I think that people found very uncomfortable. Um, and it, it is entertaining, and I like encourage everybody to watch the movie. Yeah. This is not a negative review of Fight yeah. Club, but most people feel about Fight Club the way I would imagine you feel about Fight Club that it's I, I, one of the best movies of the '90s, yes. and that it's like Fincher's best work. Yes. And I would disagree with both of those things. Wow. Wow. I still think it's a really good movie. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I'm saying it's uh, just a really good movie. (laughs) I guess, you know, one thing I I thought was kind of blew me away was, and you sort of see those little cuts of Brad Pitt, and you see him in even that sort of Visa or that that MasterCard commercial. He's there. That's, you know, at at that point where, you know. Little blips of Durden sort of trying to force him. The psychosis of Durden is starting to crack into. And once again, that's playing with playing with the narrative that I hadn't quite seen a lot of wise. And again, that goes to like I said, Fincher's spectacle. Yeah. When at the beginning, when we meet Edward Norton's character, and everything is like he's got all the IKEA furniture and his mail order soap and everything, and we see his entire place like it's a big retail outlet, or when he imagines almost daydreaming, almost wanting for a plane crash, yeah. we see the plane split apart, and there's a huge special effects sequence yeah. just for an act of whimsy, a whim in his head. Yeah. The fact that Fincher can go there so seamlessly and, and take the viewer with him, he's an amazing filmmaker. I mean, yeah. you can see that. Yeah. And, uh, and and subsequent films would bear this out. Yes. So, uh, I mean... It's it's a great watch. Uh, again, I don't want to sound like I'm giving it a negative review. Yeah, I'm just saying it ain't perfect. Yeah, you stop saying it is. <laughs> no, I, I guess. For, for, well, I mean, no, no, it's not perfect. Yeah, I can see there are flaws to it, but I can see there are a lot of flaws to some of the films that also came around the time that I would consider outstanding. I love the fact that there's so much going on with this movie um, to sort of elevate it to, I would say, a classic of the '90s, and it really also opened the door to a lot of techniques that other filmmakers would then use. The beginning of this movie is outstanding. Even the opening credits with the Dust Brothers score. Um, um, there's a, I love the wicked sense of humor of this movie. I mean, there is a sort this of... This film will be remembered, and rightfully so. Yeah, so uh, uh, yeah. That, that's why I'm sort of surprised I, I, on, on certain negativities of it. Um, I, I guess I, I overlook them in a lot of ways. They're there, but there's so much good stuff there. Yeah. And... I mean, it's probably the last ballsiest film that 20th Century Fox ever made. They've sort of, you know, <laughs> fallen into the let's make a whole lot of series of comic book movies or, you know, really bad remake for, you know, remakes. Remake, remake, remake. It's, it's, it's the last time that I thought, you know, that 20th Century Fox made a gutsy, ballsy movie that, you know, it ruffled a few feathers, and rightly so. It wasn't just shock in a lot of ways, like I said. It was exploring themes that, you know... In intelligence that make people sort of somewhat kind of disturbed, and hey, and I appreciate the sort of anarchist vibe to the movie. Yeah, even though the Fight Club is nothing that I could associate with, and nothing cr- that I, I mean, would look up to. Yeah, uh, I like that this movie is basically you know cutting a loud fart in the art house in a lot of ways. It's yeah. basically you know we're gonna shit on some China dinnerware here, yeah. and we're gonna make you pay eight bucks to watch us. Yeah, uh, you know there's some balls to that, and yeah. I definitely like that. Yeah, and I definitely think that Norton and, and 
and Brad Pitt. They're know, very, very are, good. Are very all three good. of the leads are really incredible, and they're all great characters, yeah. whether it's the narrator, Tyler Durden, or Marla. I, I think that this is also a testament to how good Helen Bottom Carter, because there's a lot of ways that that character could have been portrayed, and it would have been very ugly. Um, some people call this film very mis- misogynistic, and they might be right. I think Carter brings a lot of gravitas and a lot of anger and a lot of guts to that kind of role, and it's really neat to watch. I don't think you can call a movie about misogyny (laughs) misogynistic. This is examining sort of male energy. I think it's it's being very critical of it. And yeah, so is it, I don't know, I don't know if you can let them have their cake and eat it too, but I would defend it. I would say, yeah, there's some raunchy sex scenes, and yeah, men are portrayed as apes, but... uh, it may not be an honest portrayal, but it's closer to honest than a lot of movies There's, there's huge <laughs> truthful elements to this movie. Yeah. I mean, yes, you can also hear there's, there's some cartoonish elements to it. But, but uh, no, I don't think that the thing to do would be to go, you know, erase all of the movies in the library or, you know, ejaculate in the clam chowder soup in the fancy restaurants. Or, as fun know, as that or, might be. Or splice in a large schlong in a kid's movie. Exactly. I don't, I don't know how that makes the world better in any it way. It doesn't. I honestly think it's a big coming out movie or a guy struggling with his, with his homosexuality. But I think it's me. about a guy struggling to find his identity, yes, yes. but I don't know if I See, agree with you that it's I just I don't think it's a happy ending for Marla and and our narrator. I think that no, no, it's no. it's going to end bad and badly. And I'm sorry, like I said, the ending just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Bad, it feels weirdly allegedly right, but... there is a sequel out in comic book form now where it shows the narrator once again living married to Marla but their marriage is on the rocks it's not going yeah, well yeah, and yeah. Durden yeah I'm not I'm not gonna fall over myself to go seek out a copy of that yeah. and I, I it always bothered me Norton symbolically shoots himself through the mouth yeah and that kills the Brad Pitt character Tyler Durden, but he yeah. Survive. Edward Norton survives the gunshot. Yeah. And even if I go with the movie to say you can shoot yourself through the mouth and survive, which you can, uh, he's not going to be walking and talking. Yeah. Afterwards, he's not going to be doing anything but laying on the floor screaming and bleeding. Like the fact that he has a one-liner before the credits roll and he's holding his face together and you know. The ending of the movie just doesn't really make a lot of sense. I, it feels right. I buy the suspension. It of gets there, like yeah. the movie gets there, but um, I think that it, it, it undermines how some of the stuff they're talking about, especially the first half of the movie, really felt relevant and real and smart. And then the movie kind of turns into a music video for the third act. It's kind of disappointing to me. But it's still amazing, and everybody should watch it. The suppressed life that he was living may not have been as exciting as yeah. the Tyler Durden life, yeah. but nor was it as damaging to him and the rest of the world. Yeah. So, is the Fight Club something that you want? Well, maybe the Fight Club is something that you want, but don't need. Mm. I don't know. Uh, there's there's stuff to think about in this movie, and like yeah. I say, please watch Fight Club. It's good. Favorite part of the podcast. That is 
six uh, you so crazy director masterclass movies that have like, been reviewed. I, I so. feel like we're gonna throw it down on this list. <laughs> Shit I, gets think this real. Is, I think that there's gonna be some genuine disagreements <laughs> here, but all right. Well, so be it. I'm ready yeah. for it. I can hack it. Yeah, all right. What was your least favorite of these six movies? Well, I think you and I are gonna agree on the least uh, least favorite, and that would be Manhunter. Okay. It's probably the weakest out of the two. It just suffers. Uh, from, you know, it, I guess the A.D. cheese and style. It's a classic example of, you know, film very stuck in its generation and that hurts it. And also some weak performances. Um, so that's number six, I do believe. All right. Here we go, though. Shallow Grave is next. Number five. All number right. five. Um... The story is not original. You know, we've seen this story before, I think, in that regards. The acting is really well done. You can t clearly tell a very talented filmmaker did it. It's just that we've seen the story before. And also, one thing that I think hurts it from being a, a very good, a very amazing thriller is that all the characters, lead characters that we're, you know, going for are unsympathetic. I think they, they had to make one of them truly sympathetic. It came close with... The, we were uh, rooting for Ewan McGregor, but I just if that's if sort that's of, sort of I guess the most charming of the three. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'm gonna have you know Shallow Grave is number five, and like I said, like these are like all very very good films. Um, number four is Blue Velvet. I think just the fact that Blue Velvet takes a little more chances than say Shallow Grave did. I, I, I will always give extra points for trying something original, even if you fall flat on your face. Right. Uh, and I mean, I think I, I think of Southland Empire. I, I don't think it's you know I, Inland Empire, yeah. or, or not Inland Empire, but um, Southland Tales. Southland Sorry. Tales, right? You know, I, I you know I will never condemn you to being like one of the worst movies ever because you know you tried something new, whether it's with the medium of sequence of time or performance or style or whatever. Um, and it also, there's a genuine, you know, it creates a genuine fear and dread. There's something about it. There's something primal about Blue Velvet and what Lynch did and, the, you know, the nature of evil that it stays with you. You know, it was a film that did stay with me. I, it's always stayed with me after I've seen it, I think, like now four or five times now. And it stays with you after a while. And you have to acknowledge that fact. It, it, it does, whether you agree or not with its depiction of SM, you know, S&M, it's you know it stays there. The, the images stay there. The choices that you know, just kind of register. Um, Memento would be next. Memento, I guess, would be number three. Um, once again, it's sort of got that original take where it's playing with the you know the narrative of time and, and also of sequence. It, it, you know, it's a gimmick movie. Guy Pearce is very very good. All of them are very very solid. I even you know I love the. the the colors that Nolan uses as well, it's good. So number three is would be Memento. I forgot how good, like all around good, amazing cast. The, the rest in Shutter Island, which is number two. Um, it's a well-made gothic thriller that sort of got you know you know dips its hand in those nineteen forty Universal monster movies almost, just with the setting. Very gothic. I love the fact that a lot, a lot of the violence is implied. In Shutter Island, I mean, there is there are scenes of there's violence. some grisliness to it. There is some grisliness to it, but the, a lot of the violence is sort of seen off screen, even up until the end. We never thankfully see the actual. We see the after effects of the murder of the kids. Still horrifying. Yeah, it's what's implied in a lot of ways with Shutter Island, and it's so well made, so well paced. It's good and features, I think, probably one of the best performances of, of DiCaprio's film career. It's it's a really good, genuine. Good performance. Uh, I I argue that he's given many before that, 
what I call this generation's random. No, but that's for another day. And last but not least, Fight Club's all the way at the top. This huh? film had balls. It really, really did. It's an uncomfortable movie, and it knows it. It's love the fact that it was pushing buttons. There's no other film quite like it. I, I, I sort of, you know, kind of at least argue with the fact like, what's a film that you could wrestle? It's, it's original in, in a lot of ways. Um, I love the sarcastic sense of humor of this film. It's very anti-capitalist nature, or at least the trappings of it. Um, the characters are bug nut insane. It's a, a very talented person made this movie. I, you know, I, I agree with you. The first hour is better than the than the second, but there's no other film quite like it. It rattled people. Well, and if you piss people off, if you incite that sort of thing, you yeah. hit a nerve. You've, yeah. you've done something. It gets away with it. Yeah. You know, it, it explains where it's coming from. You don't have to like the opening or, uh, you know, the main characters. In fact, I think it's sort of encouraging you not to. Or if you do, you maybe need to take, take a, a long pause and examine, you know, your life and decisions. But... Like I said, there's so many balls that are thrown up in the air in this movie on so many levels that it manages to catch most of them. Mm-hmm. I agree that it, it there's a lot of suspension of disbelief you have to have with, you know, this movie. But does that make it, you know, a, not even a classic film? Because in a lot of classic movies, there's going to be huge suspension of disbelief. Star Wars, mm-hmm. great movie, but a lot of suspension of disbelief. Yeah. So I guess that doesn't bother me. Um, the, the, the performances of both Edward Norton and Brad Pitt, are, and and really, I think the true star of the movie is Hella Bottom Carter because she managed to make a very difficult character very three dimensional. Um, I don't know, and the movie it did slap me in the face. I, I still remember, you know, I didn't go opening night, but you know, the night I saw everything about that night, it's, I'll be, I remember seeing Fight Club for the first time, and it'd been a long while since I'd watched a movie and just kind of went, wow. And there it was. So number one. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, we do have fairly different lists, but I don't know if we're going to have any, you know, big screaming matches over yeah. it. Uh, I agree with you that number six is Manhunter. Yeah. I think what you see in Manhunter is sort of Michael Mann uh, exploring his best and worst impulses. Yes. yes. And the good stuff, like I said, was the characterization of sort of the driven police investigative procedural angle. He seems to be very much in love with that. And the the other stuff, the sort of soaking in the scenery yeah. and the sort of romantic subplot with the yeah. serial killer uh, didn't work as much. And I really felt the signature style that was so big for man, especially when he established himself in the 80s yeah. in this Miami Vice days or whatever, yeah. uh, actually has turned around and bit him on the ass now. Because I found a lot of those music video sequences just brought the movie to a dead stop. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. So number six, Manhunter. Yeah. Uh, number five is Blue Velvet. It's, like I said, the most mainstream, or the first time mainstream kind of really embraced Lynch. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a very Lynchian Lynch movie, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. It's not one of his, you know, less You, you can definitely tell he made his movie. Yeah. And uh, for being the first of its kind and for making an impression, like you say, mm-hmm. uh, as troubling as some of the stuff is, the, the sort of ugly sexuality of the movie, mm-hmm. perverse and stuff is, it's sticks with you. You mm-hmm. remember scenes from this movie. It has some staying power in your in your brain, whether you want it to or not. Mm-hmm. So, it, it again, there was some effective scenes in this movie, but there was also 
like in most, if not all, David Lynch movies. I think Lynch is so... Fat to be trimmed. So the next two on the list were tr- tricky for me. I went back and yeah. forth on it. Yeah. But in the end, I put Shallow Grave at number four. Yeah. Um, these two movies have in common that there's basically no no likable characters yeah. at the end of the day yeah. for either of them. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, again, for me, that can be problematic. Yeah. I think I find the performances really strong in Shallow Grave. They're really, really good all, all across the board. To see Danny Boyle flexing his muscles right out of the gate here, I mean, this is an entertaining movie. Yeah. It is a familiar movie, yeah. like we've said, but it is entertaining. And, and it's I a very lean film. To... There's a lot of fat that you know, it is trimmed. It's a very lean yeah. thriller. Uh, it's well executed, yeah. and uh, it's a great popcorn date movie too. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not again. I, I characterize these characters as fairly unlikable, but it's not like we're asked to sort of embrace their evil lifestyle. We're right. sort of given a window into them, right. and the movie has such a light, fun energy to it, considering yeah. how sinister the story is. That uh, it, it'll it'll race you to the end, you know. Uh, and then yeah, number three is Memento. Yeah. Uh, again, it's. Uh, a lot of it is the technique of the way they tell the story. Mm-hmm. The story itself, bare bones, not that amazing. Mm-hmm. But uh, the way the story is told, and in particular the wrinkle of the the slow reveal of the the Stephen Tobolowsky angle, yeah. well, what this this case study character really represents, yeah. uh, I think that pays off well in the movie. Yeah. Uh, so in the end, if you know. <laughs> If you're watching a bunch of bugs drown in the toilet, uh, (laughs) at least it was entertaining. (laughs) Well played. At number two, I put the Fight Club. Um, I think we had a huge conversation about it. I don't know how much more I really want to say. I really like Lynch. And even before Fight Club came out, he'd already established himself for me as a guy. If he makes a movie, I will get around to seeing it. uh, I I mean Fincher. Fincher, pardon me. Yeah. Uh, did I say Lynch? You no. did. Uh, Fincher, if he makes a movie, I'm going to see it. Some of his movies I like more than others. Yeah. And this ranks high in, in, in his catalog, but I don't think it's the top. Um, so, by all means, see and enjoy Fight Club. And yeah. it will... It's a conversation starter. It is. It is. You'll either... I think some people will either like really, really love it or really, really disturbed by it. Uh, controversially... I'm putting Shutter Island wow. at number one out of wow. the system movies. Uh, it's kind of surprises me, and in a way, I'm a little bit skeptical because it's also the most like recent of the yeah. movies. So, yeah. in, in a way, like my experience of it, I mean, I guess I rewatched the movies yeah. before, but I, I, this hasn't been able to sit with me as long as some of these other ones. And so, who knows how how time will 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 be these? I find period pieces tend to age better. Yeah, because yeah, well, they are by their nature period, designed to be period. period pieces. I mean, yeah. But um, I think what we see here is uh, Scorsese flexing his muscles and putting it into a thriller horror movie context. Yeah. So it's one of my favorite directors doing one of my favorite genres. Okay. I love, one of the many things. There you go. There's so much that we didn't talk about Shutter Island in a lot of ways of you know what 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 makes that movie tick. I love the fact that I think it's every time that you see fire, he's in the fantasy world, and every time you see water, he's in re- reality. Right. There's so many th- great things going on in that film. This movie may not be as ambitious as some of the other movies in the list, particularly yeah. Fight Club and Memento. Yeah. But it's just really good at being what it is. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, again, I think what makes a lot of these twist movies work yeah. is if the movie didn't have a twist. Yeah. If the movie really was about a guy coming to this asylum trying to find a missing person, mm-hmm. and there was a big scheme to try and keep him out of the loop, yeah. it would still work. I because think... of the cast and because of Scorsese, it would still work. The twist actually gives it that sort of extra punch. Yeah. But uh, it definitely makes it rewatchable. The whole it? movie, like it all, it all fits together perfectly. I guess another thing about Shutter Island that I call the little critical. I, I, I guess I sort of figured out halfway through. If you haven't figured out that, you know, he's an inmate at the halfway point because I think it shows its hand early. Yeah, in well, a lot of ways. I there's a classic story, and I read it when I was young, and I wish I could remember the name of the original author. Yeah. It's a fairly f- familiar conceit, but uh, you know, there's a storm, and they pull up to this hospital, yeah, and uh, their people are being weird treated by the staff, and you find out what's happened is that the inmates took over the asylum. Mm. The staff has all been long dead, and they just, uh, they've just they been living there and posing as staff members. Mm. Uh, and that's kind of where I was thinking, starting to think with Shutter Island, just mm. because of the strangeness of everyone else's behavior. Mm. Um, but... Uh, Again, I try not to overthink it when I watch these movies because if you find if you spend the whole movie trying to figure it out, you kind of take yourself out of the movie as mm-hmm. a consequence. So. That's a pretty terrifying consequence. If, you know, little twists where there are, all the people are <laughs> everybody, the inmates crazy. are running the asylum. <laughs> yeah. Literally, it's a pretty terror, and you now have sort of essentially gone into the middle of it. Yeah. There it was, episode 24 is behind us. If you would like to write, rank, and review, and uh, let your host Larry Parsons know just exactly what you think of him, you can do so at review at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. We also have a presence on Facebook, although that is rank and review, not rank and review. So feel free to find that and like it, and uh, please keep listening, keep telling your friends. Thank you so much.